I appreciate that. A little bit taller here. That's good. Uh, yeah, that's good. That's perfect. Good morning, everybody. Hope you all are doing well, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning, and it's good to see some snow falling. I uh, appreciate your prayers for Valerie. She's feeling a little bit sick, so she's struggling with a sinus infection, and so unfortunately, uh, that's happening. But um, but yeah, before, before we get started, uh, let's pray, and then I want to tell you a story. Lord, um, we commit to you our lives. We commit to you our minds and our hearts. Lord, would you prepare us for what you're doing in the world and um, help us to see the role that you have for us to play in your greater kingdom, your greater scheme of things, and your administration. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Can, can you guys hear me even if I'm away from the microphone? Okay, so there's a story of a woman who's at the beach. And so this woman, she's walking down the beach. To her right is the ocean, and to her left there are sand dunes. And so if you like the beach, you know, you can imagine like the seagulls are flying overhead. The waves are crashing. She can smell the salt in the air. And um, little crabs are walking in the sand, and driftwood is all over the place. So she's walking, enjoying this beautiful sunny day. And as she's walking, she sees something in the distance in the sand. And so she walks up to it, and she looks down, and she, uh, she sees a cell phone sitting in the sand. Now, the interesting thing is, is that prior to this point in time, she has never seen a cell phone before, ever. Never seen a cell phone, right? So she's looking at it, and uh, she reaches down, and she picks it up, and she's just kind of going like this, right? And uh, she has two questions immediately. Can you imagine what questions come to her mind? What is it? What is it? Yes, that's one. Uh, that could be a question, but that's not the question I'm looking for. Where did it come from? Right? And so um, <clears throat> she's looking at the, the cell phone, and uh, what is it? And how? Because it, it doesn't look like it fits in with the natural landscape of things, right? Like it looks like... It does not belong. It doesn't blend with the driftwood. It doesn't blend with the sand. It doesn't blend with the birds and the wildlife. And so the interesting thing is, is that you and I know Samsung made this phone, right? Or Apple, if you have an Apple. Um, She takes the back off, and what she finds, these radio semiconductors, these transmitters, the circuitry, and we know Samsung made this. There's no doubt. And and the chances of this cell phone appearing out of nothing are basically nothing. It's impossible. This cell phone could not have made itself by chance, right? So she drops the phone, and she's looking at her hand. For the first time in her life, she sees her hand. And she's she's feeling her hand and her arms and her face. And, And she doesn't know about deoxyribonucleic acid. She doesn't know about um, enzymes and how blood clots. and The human body is much more complex than this cell phone. The human body can reproduce. So there is a God who made the entire world, the entire universe. God knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. Um, And so the things that I'm going to talk to you about this morning, I want you to pay close attention to, and I want you to take them really close to your heart because... Um, it's really, really important, 
as the people of God to do what God wants us to do. And God knows who you are. He knows every recess of your heart. He knows every recess of your mind. He knows what you do when no one's looking. He knows your character. He knows secret sins. And I really want to encourage you that your life is right with God because the, the mission and the administration that God has for us in the world is so important that if we're not the people that God wants us to be, he's not going to use us. So as I, as I talk to you this morning, search your heart, search your mind, and I pray that um, you're living a holy life. So <coughs> I want to ask you a couple of questions to start off. Actually, exactly two questions, okay? What does your life individually, as an individual, or as a family, and even as a church, what does your life individually, as a family, and as a church, announce and demonstrate to a lost world about the reign of God and the kingdom of God on earth? So what does your life announce to a lost world and demonstrate to a lost world about the life of God and the kingdom of God? By definition, announce means to make known publicly, to state, to declare, to proclaim, and demonstrate means to display openly, to illustrate by examples, to exhibit, and to show. So what does your life make known publicly to the world around you and declare about God? What does your life display to a lost world about God? And and I want you to think about that. So imagine your life is like a movie trailer. You guys like movies? I love movies. And so I love movie trailers. And, you know, a movie trailer is kind of like this 45-second clip of a greater two-hour film picture, right? So if you had to characterize and categorize your life as a movie trailer, if a lost world is looking at the movie trailer of your life, what would they think about God based on your life? Okay? Think about that for a second. And, and, and think about your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, uh, your hockey team, your curling team, you know, whatever hobbies, whatever social networks you have with people. The people who know you, when they look at you, when they watch you, what do they think about God? The second question I have for you is, <clears throat> what is your life individually, as a family, as a church body, What does your life reveal about your desire for cooperation or your lack of cooperation with the missionary God and his activity on earth? So in other words, if someone looks at your life and they see how you spend your time and what you do, do they see you cooperating with God's heart as revealed in in God's word? Are you cooperating with God's plan and agenda in the world to achieve God's desires, and results in this world. Cooperation defined is an act or an instance of working together for a common purpose or benefit. It's joint action, assistance from a person or organization, and uh, cooperation can also mean it's a share for mutual benefit. So what is your life? If someone were to look from the outside, how would they describe your cooperation with God to reach a lost world? Are you aware of the God-given responsibilities God gives to his children for his agenda and plan on earth right now and right here? 
Are you the kind of person who is excited to partner with God? Like, does the, does the idea of, yeah, God wants to use me and wants to use us, and does, does that excite you? Does it scare you? Are you refusing to partner with God in his agenda for the world around you? Are you, are you obeying his ways and his commands to reach a lost world? Are you excited to mobilize other people to join with God and with you as you seek to obey Jesus and his commands? Is your life marked by cooperation with God, or is it marked by a lack of cooperation with God? And how do you know the answer to that question? <coughs> Shift gears here a little bit. When you think about goals and desires, so raise your hand if you have some kind of goal in life, right? So there's something that you want to accomplish. So, for example, um, if a goal is the result or fruit of activity, like I, I want to do this to achieve this, every goal has a desire. So I'll give you an example. I'm trying to lose weight. I'm trying to lose a lot of weight, right? So in nine, was it 17 months, my goal is to achieve this weight. The reason is because is I want to be healthy. I want to be around for my kids a long time, right? Um, another kind of goal, some of us, we might desire to go to college or university to acquire a degree so that we can get an education, get a good job. Others of us might want to get a promotion at work. Um, the desire for that goal, for instance, would be to make more money, um, to, to be able to provide more for our family, right? So every goal has a desire. Maybe if you have kids, you want to see your children grow up and have a love for God and a love for people. Uh, you desire your children to know the God who made them in his image. You desire your children to know and experience God. You desire, you desire your kids to have and experience abundant life that can only be found in Christ. You want to see your children make an impact for the kingdom of God in this dark earth, right? So we, we all have different kinds of goals fueled by different kinds of desires. Question for you, what goals have you set individually as a family and corporately to announce the reign of God in your world, to demonstrate the reign of God in your world, and to cooperate with the missionary God in his world for his missionary agenda. Have you set goals that are very particular and specific to reach the people that you know in your circles of influence? If we set goals for other things, yet we don't set goals that represent God's desire and heart and agenda of the world, there might be something wrong. How would you describe your heart, your mind, your attitude, and your outlook towards the lost? If, 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 if Jesus sat down with you for a chai chat and he said to you, tell me, tell me about your heart and your mind and your attitude with regard to the lost. How do you think about them? What do you feel about them? How do we get to a place where we weep? And some nights we can't sleep because we are so concerned for the spiritual and physical well-being of those who are without Christ. How do you get to that place? If you're not there now, does that bother you? And is there a desire to get to that point where you are so consumed with the fact that people don't know the God who made them and you want to do something about it because God has transformed your life? That brings me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse uh, 
9 through 21. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me. I'm going to go ahead and read it. And then we're just going to talk about it really quick. Second Corinthians 5, 9 through 21. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing that the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. For we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. (coughs) For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have come. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are now Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture in the whole New Testament for several reasons, and we'll get into some of those reasons as we talk about this. But the first thing that I want you to notice in verse 9 is is that God's people should only have one holy ambition. And what is that? whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Would you say that you have that ambition in your life? Do you have a desire to be pleasing to God? And how do you know if you have that desire? How do you know if it's your desire to be pleasing to God in your ambition? What is your ambition? If if, if Christ asked you, point blank, not being able to hide behind any idea or any lifestyle, what is your ambition? Would you have confidence to be able to say, my ambition in life is to please you, Lord? Verse 10, I want us to think about how our lives matter now. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. What we do today in life, today, matters for eternity. If if we are unaware of that, we will not take care of our time, and we will not take care of how we spend our time and our resources and our life. The things that you and I do today, God is keeping watch over them. 
Now, as believers, we're not going to go to hell, right? But we will stand before the bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and we will be rewarded by the things that we do and the things that we don't do. We will receive good things, and we will lose rewards if we don't obey Christ. That's the, the scriptural teaching. What we do today in our life, we will be paid back of the judgment seat of Christ. Our life and our obedience or our lack of obedience matter today. Do we live our lives in anticipation of the bema seat of Christ? Do we think about the rewards or loss of rewards in our lives in light of the truth of this passage? How we spend our time, our resources, our words, our actions, the intents of our heart, it all matters, folks. Every second matters. How we treat people, how we love people, both saved and unsaved. Do we believe what's written here? If the scripture is true, it should wake us up to both the privilege and the seriousness of the call of God on each of our lives as his children. Verse 11, we see, let me read it. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciousness. We know who God is. We, we know the truth about God, right? God has revealed himself to us. We know his character. We know he knows no beginning. God is uncreated life. He is all-powerful. He has no equal. He's holy. He's just. He's righteous. He's loving. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. You and I know who God is. The world doesn't know who he is. Therefore, we must become master persuaders. Are you working hard to persuade the people in your life about who God is? Are you trying to persuade the people in your life about who God is? Are you developing skill sets? Are, are, you, are you trying to find answers to people to convince them about the truth of God? Are you doing your best to become a master persuader as to the truth of who God is? What is the fear of the Lord? Let me read uh, Hebrews chapter 10, 30 through 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. <clears throat> it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The people that we know, the people in our social networks, they don't know when they're going to die, right? Um, tomorrow's not promised. Today, even finishing today is not promised. You could be driving home, get into a car accident, and you could die. The people in your spheres of influence, if they were to die without Christ, what would that mean? It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The responsibility that God has given to each of us to take responsibility for the people in our lives is, is pretty monumental. Why do we fear God? God made us. We did not make God. The God of the Bible is holy and just. Did you know you can look at your life and tell if you fear God? The fruit of your life will determine and will show clearly if you fear God or not. It's simple. Do you follow the ways of Christ? Do you obey his commands? If you don't follow his ways and you don't obey his commands, there's a good chance that you don't fear God. And maybe you don't really believe what, what's in the word. If we continue in secret sin, open before God but hidden from men, we mock God in his power and holiness. Maybe 
we really don't believe he's there. I don't know if any of you are struggling with secret sin, but if you are, you need to find help, and you need to have someone encourage you to help walk out of that with the power of God empowering you inside. Question for you. Why did you accept the gospel message when you heard it? Think back to when you heard the gospel for the first time. Why did you accept the gospel? Were you overwhelmed with your sin and the things that you had done? And were you overwhelmed with the the, the free gift of God rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins? Uh, Do you remember the relief that you felt when you decided to follow Christ and when he set you free from your old way of doing things? The old way of life, the old patterns, the old habits, the, the, um, the, the dismalness, the darkness, the weight, the, the shame. Um, you remember what it was like to be set free from all of those things? And, and that's what God wants for, for all of his creation. What does it mean to persuade men? In this, in this verse, um, the, the translation from the Greek basically means to induce one by words to believe, to make friends of, it can also mean to win one's favor, to gain one's goodwill, to seek to win one, to strive, to please, to convince, to pacify, and to assure. Are you doing everything in your power for those within your circles, your neighbors, your workmates, your your friends, even strangers you might meet on the bus or on the train? Are you doing everything you can to persuade people to, to, to know who Christ is? Why do we try to persuade men and women? What is it that we believe about the nature of God and of the things to come for humankind when they die? Are you consumed with the truth of God's word and the nature of God's heart towards his created people? Do you share God's compassion for people he has created who do not know him? What are some specific ways we can persuade others to follow Christ? Uh, I'll get into that in a little bit. Here's a question. What might be some reasons some do not try to persuade men and women towards Christ? What are some reasons that we don't do this? Maybe it's fear of man. Maybe it's shame for the name of Jesus. Maybe we haven't ourselves been transformed by the God of the gospel. Maybe we don't understand who God really is. Maybe we've never had anyone teach us or show us or coach us on what it means to evangelize, uh, to disciple people. Maybe you can think of some other reasons why we don't try to persuade people to to follow and to know Christ. God is the God of love and justice and righteousness. Knowing we will stand in judgment for our life and how we spend it, how does this make us feel? Does it scare you? you? Does your mind and heart fill with regret? Are you excited? Are you confident? The love of Christ guides and inspires his children. Let's look at verse 14. Going back here. Second Corinthians five fourteen. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this that one died for all, therefore all died. What does it mean that the love of Christ controls us? The sacrifice of of Christ on the cross for our sins to save us compels the people of God to lay down their own ambition and will, and offer their lives as a complete offering to say to Jesus, thank you, I will do anything, I will go anywhere, I will say anything, yes, Lord. If you are in control of your own life, 
And if you make the decisions for your life based on your own desires, the gospel has not transformed your heart. Let me say that again. If you are in control of your own life, and if you make the decisions for your life based on your own desires, the gospel has not transformed your heart. The gospel message works in the hearts and minds of God's people in such a way that they give up control of their wants, their ideas, their desires. In other words, God's people become slaves to God. We do this because we know God loves us and has our best interest in heart. God is a good God, and we can trust his plan no matter how hard it is or how much it will hurt us to follow that plan and obey. Does God rule your life? Does God rule your life? Or do you rule your life? Paul is saying that for the child of God, that the love of Christ controls the life of his church, his people. God's people are about God's business. If people are not about God's business, they may not be God's people. God's business is about rescuing and restoring people, and he takes the rescued and uses them to rescue more still. What does it mean that one died for all and therefore all died? Jesus died for the entire world, right? He died for you, he died for me, he died for Canada, he died for India, he died for America, he died for every single man, woman, and child on the face of the planet in times past, present, and future. God loves the entire world, and he wants to reach the entire world. Is the love of Christ controlling you? As you look and think about your life, does the love of Christ dictate to you what you do and how you spend your time, your resources, and all of who you are? Everyone is in the same boat. Verses 14 through 15. Let me read it. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I was thinking about Dwight's message last week about, uh, it was it's probably one of the most powerful messages I've heard on the lost. Um, leave the 99 sheep to find the one that's lost, the 10 coins and the prodigal son. Um, do you have a heart to see all people come to know your Lord? What are you prepared and willing to do to make this a reality when and where it depends upon you? The choice has always been from the beginning. Will I live for myself or will I live for the one who created me? Verses 14 and 15. That's, that's what it's saying. The opportunity for you and me is to stop living for ourselves. The invitation is to stop living for ourselves. The good news is, is that you don't have to live for yourself anymore. The resurrection makes it possible and seals the deal. And the resurrection empowers the ability to live for God. Verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know him in this way no longer. The resurrection is what allows us to live for God and for other people and to see them with the love and the hope that God has for them. People, think about maybe before you came to Christ and how you saw people, how you, think, how you used to think about people. Um, I could say some of these would be true for me. Uh, they might be true for you. But before Christ, maybe you looked at people in this way. People were a means to an end. Maybe they were annoying, maybe they were a burden, maybe they were a pain in your side. Maybe people were unclean and dirty, or problem people, or just another person, or those people who have problems that don't concern me. 
Uh, oh, that's too bad for them. They're trapped in some bad situation. Oh, well, that's too bad for them. Uh, oh, yeah, they're exploited and abused and mistreated, but that has nothing to do with me. Uh, oh, they're inferior because of maybe some socioeconomic uh, category, or maybe their skin is too dark. After Christ, how does Christ change how we see people when we come to him? People become precious because they are made in God's image. People become precious because Jesus died for them. People are an opportunity to pour God's truth and love into. People are an opportunity to give help. People are an opportunity to serve. People are an opportunity to listen and encourage, to help them get on their feet. Uh, Another magnificent creature to recognize who is in God's image. Um, Someone to rescue from evil and suffering. Someone to stand up for who is suffering injustice and hurt and abuse. People are, uh, we, we, can, we can affirm them in their beauty. Someone to hang out with and show value. Someone to have lunch or dinner with. Someone to grieve and cry with when suffering comes. Verse 15. It emphasizes the idea that we have no more rights. No more, no more rights. Zero zilch, zip. None of us have any rights if we follow God, right? We belong to God, therefore we should be about God's business. If you are a child of God, nothing you have is your own. The house that you own is not yours. The money that you make is not yours. Uh, The time that you have is not yours. Everything belongs to God. It's all God's. It should all be at his disposal to use however he wants to use it. Are you living your life as though it's still yours? If so, why are you doing such a thing and proclaiming the name of Christ? We cannot do both and be honest. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Our old way of thinking is dead. Our old way of living is dead. Our old way of being is dead. Jesus is our new way of thinking. Jesus is our new way of living. And Jesus is our new way of being. Verse 18, Now all of those things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. As diplomats, we have a mission and we represent a government. The word reconciliation comes from the the Greek word katalage, which basically means an exchange, like that of a business of money changers. The meaning is that followers of Christ have the ministry of seeking to reconcile or to restore or help the process of exchanging the favor of God to sinners, to sinners that repent and put their trust in the death of Christ. It's a ministry of seeing people restored to a holy God so that he will look upon those who repent with favor, with love, and that he will see the righteousness of Christ in them. Every believer is called to reach their world in some way. Every single believer is called to reach their world in some way. All of us have been given the ministry of reconciliation. If you are a follower of Christ, we are all called to be involved in the ministry of reconciliation. The priesthood of all believers, that's the the hope of the gospel. I've actually heard someone say to me, we're not all called to be Paul. We're not all called to be Paul, as if um, God sets aside some certain people to do the work of the ministry, and others have a pass. When you think about <clears throat> if you truly believed you were on the way to hell and that God loved you so much that he died for you, who wouldn't want to get that message out to the entire world, right? 
it's cliche, and I don't like Christianese, and I don't like cliche stories, but I really can't think of a better illustration. Um, All of us have either directly been impacted by cancer, or we know someone who has died or suffered from cancer. But imagine if you had the cure to cancer, wouldn't you want to get out to the whole world? Of course, right? You don't want anyone to suffer. In the same way, the gospel is much more powerful than a cure to cancer because it cures something that would ensure eternal suffering apart from God. We may not all be called to be Paul in the type of ministry that Paul's involved in, but we are all called to share the gospel, and we are all called to make disciples even in our circles of life. If you love and follow Jesus, that means you believe in the gospel. If you believed in the gospel, that means you believe everyone is a sinner. If you, on your own free will, believed and repented, that means you really believe it, right? If you really believe the message, it only means that you you believe it also, and it applies to other people. If you believe in a literal place called hell, which believer wouldn't want to persuade their fellow neighbor not to go there? We didn't get what we deserved in verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of of reconciliation. That word in the Greek, logizomai, not counting their trespasses against them, that basically means that when God looked at the the lives of his children, he doesn't reckon their sin. He he doesn't count it. He doesn't compute. He doesn't calculate your sin. He he takes an inventory and and he, he, he overlooks it. If you place your faith in Christ for your salvation, this means that Jesus' death on the cross wipes your sin debt off of God's books. Verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Grace and mercy are the reason we announce. Grace and mercy are the reason we demonstrate. We are ambassadors we make an appeal. The Greek word for appeal is parakaleo, which basically means we address. We speak to in the way of exhortation, entreaty, comfort, instruction. We admonish people. We beg people. We beseech them. We strive to appease them. We, we seek to console them. We call them near. We invite them. We invoke. We desire that they would come to faith. The word beg in verse 20, where it says, We're making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The Greek word is deomehi, which basically means we desire, we long for, we ask, we beg, we pray, we make supplication, we make a request, we beseech. Verse 21 talks about the great exchange. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me read um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. 
but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You know, I, I was thinking about like Dwight's message when he was talking about the good shepherd and how there's another shepherd who wants to seek to kill and destroy and abuse the lives of people out there, um, namely the dragon. And this idea of a good shepherd, a guardian of your souls, we should be pleading and begging with people that we know in all of our spheres of influence and social networks to be reconciled to God because there is a shepherd who, who wants to guard them, who wants to guard their souls and forgive them. It's a, it's a pretty heavy topic, um, and I hope I haven't overwhelmed you um, so the question is, um, what, what do we need to do moving forward? If you are not engaging for the souls of men, women, and children, if you, if you are outsourcing that to people you consider spiritual leaders, you know, the Christmas banquet was great. It was awesome. People gave their life to Christ. But that doesn't mean that our responsibility stops there, Right? Our responsibility deals with the people that we know. Um, it's great to have events. It's great to have programs. But programs are not the answer. Programs to, um, to kind of divert my own personal responsibility to reach people, if a program does that, that that's terrible. We are all called to reach people, to, to impact people that we know in our spheres of influence. As you evaluate your walk with the Lord... Are you living your life with that future meeting with Christ at the judgment seat in mind? Are you cognizant of the fact that the God of the Bible is holy and nothing escapes his attention? He knows all. Are you trying to persuade the people in your circles and spheres of influence to believe in Christ? Are you compelled to engage a lost world for the love of Christ? Are you sold and sure on the idea that Christ died for you and for the entire world? Does this move you and capture your heart and your life? Are you looking at people with eyes of eternity? In fact, a new creation in Christ, have you, been, have you been made new? If you are not engaging for the souls of men, women, and children, do you really understand the gospel? If you understand the gospel and you are not engaging for the souls of those around you, there is something wrong. If that is you, do you need help to figure out what is wrong? Are you busy about God's ministry of reconciliation in the world, in Canada, in Ontario, in the GTA? in your town, in your neighborhood? What are you doing? Are you begging people you know to be reconciled to Christ before it's too late? Are you changed and transformed by the truth that God is for you and loves you so much that he died for you? You know, I, I'm convinced that we have three identities that can be summed up in, in terms of our purpose on life and on earth. Um, God's people are the church. Right? So we want to grow in what it means to be a disciple of Christ and, and how we relate to each other, how we encourage each other in the way of Jesus. Um, a family. The, the people of God should be like a family, practicing the one another's that you see in the New Testament. And the people of God are all missionaries, every single one of us. We are all called to be involved in, in the struggle for the hearts and minds of, of the lost. I, I talked with Vigie about this, and... Um, Valerie and I have decided, for any of you 
who, who need help in this area. Um, after the new year, we are willing to open up our home one time a week, one night a week, where we'll have dinner. And we will coach and encourage and, and equip and train any of you who need encouragement on how to reach lost people with ideas, with, um, with encouragement, with, with strategy, with prayer. And, uh, and so I wanted to make mention of that. You'll, you'll probably be hearing more of that in, in the next several weeks. But if that's you and you need encouragement, we would love to help you. We would love to serve you in that way. Um, yeah, so I'm going to leave it there. And um, let's pray. And I would ask that as you, that you would pray and that you would think long and hard on, am I doing everything that I can do to, to, to do what God wants me to do in my, my spheres of influence? Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. I, I thank you for your word. Lord, you're a good God. You're a great God. And we want to be about your business. We, we want to be about who you are and what you've done in the world. And we, we don't want to miss the train, Lord. We don't want to miss out on what you're doing. Father, I pray that you would, you would help us to know and to see what our role is in your kingdom. God, make us sensitive. Give, give us, if we don't weep for the lost, if we don't care about the lost, would you do something in our hearts that would change that? Because we know it has to come from you. Lord, I pray that you would um, bring conviction and rebuke where it's necessary. Lord, I pray that you would, you, would, you would break our hearts, and Lord, that you would use us for your purposes in your kingdom in this place. Uh, Father, help us to, to see you. Help us to, to understand your heart. God, give us strength and courage to do what, what you have called us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.